Hello, Capital, Capital Region. This is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on WOOCLP 105.3 FM, Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM, Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM, Albany, and WCAALP 107.3 FM. Albany Broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media. I'm back by limited demand only. This is your host, H. Boss Jr., the hippest, hottest, baddest host in America. Well, I can't follow that, but uh, I'm Cena, <laughs> boring old Cena Bazila Hickey. And tonight we begin by speaking with Dr. David Bond about why community members and researchers wrote a letter written on March 17th to DEC Commissioner Basil Segos. Then we'll bring you part six of it, or part six of a seven-part segment, Lessons Learned from the Civil Rights Movement to Black Lives Matter. Later on, we have a special Triple E segment with Selma, Alabama's mayor, James Perkins Jr. After that, Reverend Dr. Bill Levering reacts to the sentencing of John Williams Kirby Kelly for his role with the super racist in a conspiracy that targeted over 100 churches in 2018. Finally, end, we end with a preview of Friday, March 19th's event, Dying with Dignity in New York, with moderator of the event, Corinne Carey. But first, some headlines. Spectrum reports that as of that state lawmakers considered the creation of a fund to aid workers who have not qualified for federal stimulus aid and other benefits during the pandemic. A new report from the Fiscal Policy Institute found $3.5 billion is needed to provide support. The fund would help about 274,000 workers in New York, not included undocumented workers in the federal unemployment system. The New York State Legislature passed a bill to strictly limit solitary confinement in prisons. The bill will be sent to the governor's office, who will either sign or veto this bill. More than 300 climate and social justice groups have released a letter calling on Congressional member Paul Tonko to execute fossil fuels, nuclear energy, garbage incineration, carbon capture technology, and other false solutions from his proposed climate bill. The Clean Futures Act seeks to achieve 100% clean electricity by 2035. In our first segment of today, HMM Alexis Goldsmith spoke with Dr. David Bond, the lead author of a letter written on March 17th to DNC Commissioner Basil Sagos in response by community members and researchers to the New York DAC release of soil and water analysts surrounded the Norlite hazardous waste incinerator. This is HMM's Alexis Goldsmith, and I'm joined on the show again by Dr. David Bond of Bennington College. Welcome back, Dr. Bond. Uh, great to be back. Uh, thanks for thanks for inviting me to this great this timely conversation. You recently helped write a letter to DEC Commissioner Basil Sagos, uh, analyzing the DEC's recently released uh, study of soil and water samples surrounding the Norlite facility. Can you give us some background on that DEC study? 
as you as you know, about a year ago, uh, right now actually, Bennington College took seven samples from the community around Norlight, seven samples of soil and water, uh, and we looked for uh, PFAS compounds that are commonly associated with AFFF, a toxic firefighting foam. Uh, we were doing this because Norlite uh, had burned millions of pounds of this toxic firefighting foam, uh, despite there being no scientific evidence that incineration destroys these toxic compounds, uh, and good reason to think it might be emitting them into the surrounding communities. Uh, so we took seven soil samples a year ago uh, and, and analyzed them for PFAS compounds. Uh, and when we got those results back, we found elevated levels of, of PFAS compounds that we associate with AFFF. Uh, but we only had seven samples, and so we really wanted to sort of ask for further research. Uh, DEC uh, came in and agreed to do a more extensive look at uh, PFAS levels in soil around Norlite uh, and conducted that research. It took them about a year to get the results back out, uh, and we just got, they just released them last week, uh, and their summary of them was uh, a bit breathless. Uh, they said that the results uh, offered no link um, between PFAS levels in the soil around uh, Norlite uh, and emissions from Norlite. Um, yeah, so the letter, so the DEC, the, the report on the study that they conducted is 449 pages long. You analyzed that report uh, for this letter to Commissioner Sagos. Now, what were some of the key concerns that you took issue with with the DEC's well, yeah. analysis. Great. Look, uh, I and others really appreciate the data. This this report adds new data to the really uh, urgent question: Is incineration fully destroying AFFF? Uh, and this seems to be a study that has good data. Uh, the problem with the study, though, is not the data; it's the conclusions that DEC draws. Uh, DEC comes away uh, almost having uh, full you know, confidence uh, in uh, incineration, uh, and, and yet the data does not yet answer that question. Um, the data is actually quite varied. Uh, so DEC at one point says it had found uh, no clearly discernible pattern of aerial deposition that could be traced back to Norlite's operations. It's a direct quote from their, their uh, study. Yet in their study, they identify several uh, spatial patterns uh, of contamination that could be attributed to Norlite, including higher levels downwind of Norlite, uh, of mercury, lead, and arsenic, heavy metals that we know are often associated with emissions from hazardous waste incinerators. Uh, and the, the uh, DEC study also identified higher levels of PFOS in the, in the immediate vicinity around Norlite, which again suggests that uh, Norlite may be emitting uh, these, these toxic chemicals. So in the study, DEC once again compared the levels that they found to a study done in Vermont about background contamination yes. of PFOS, but you, but you had some concerns with that. The, the crucial thing, if you wanna understand local emissions with, with chemicals like PFAS compounds, is these chemicals are ubiquitous. At this point, they're everywhere. Anywhere you look for them, you find them. And so if you wanna understand local emissions, you have to kind of know what's the, what's the expected background levels of these things that you can then sort of measure the local uh, emissions or, or deposition on top of. Uh, and so DEC, you know, rightfully sort of tried to sort of sort out what background levels might be. 
But when they did that, they, they turned uh, and interpreted a number of studies that have taken up that question in a really curious way. Uh, instead of providing a kind of background level of what the expected levels in soils was, uh, DEC provided this really wide range. And so it's, it, they said when, when Vermont tried to come up with its understanding of what background levels were, here's the range of results that Vermont found of this, of this chemical in the soil. Well, that range is so wide that it kind of covers over what is the actual background level. Uh, and so there's, there's some pretty, pretty standard uh, kinds of scientific uh, procedures that one would do uh, to run a, a more uh, sophisticated and robust analysis uh, of this question. And DEC did not do that. You can, you can take off the outliers uh, of those ranges and try to find a more clustered where, where most of those levels actually cluster in the soil and take that as a background. Uh, and DEC did not do that. Uh, they included the full range of results. Um, and and when, you, when, you, when you start to do some of the common scientific practices uh, when addressing a question like this, uh, very quickly the levels around Norlite go from sort of being similar to others to really being anomalous from those others. Uh, and they, they come to sort of be much more significant uh, around the compounds like PFOS, uh, which is a sort of known uh, ingredient of AFFF. When we, when we tried running those, those, uh, that analysis on, on the numbers DEC themselves provided, that PFOA did seem to remain within levels that we found elsewhere in the region. Uh, PFOA is not associated with AFFF. PFOS, when we ran those numbers, really came up quite a bit higher around Norlet than anywhere else in the region. Uh, and PFOS is a major ingredient in AFFF. So what would some concerns be as the letter says, DEC's own data identifies elevated levels of contamination downwind of Norlite and Norlite's the immediate vicinity of Norlite, uh, and they measured higher levels of arsenic, mercury, and lead downwind. Those uh, heavy metals are, are known um, toxins. They, they cause real harm to folks. Um, and PFAS compounds, I mean, we know that these chemicals from Hoosick Falls and Newburgh and elsewhere in the state uh, exposure to trace amounts uh, of these perfluorinated compounds is strongly linked to a host of cancers, developmental disorders, immune dysfunction, uh, and, and infertility, among others. Uh, these, are, these are public health risks. Uh, if this incinerator is emitting uh, these heavy metals uh, and these perfluorinated compounds, that poses an urgent uh, health risk to folks, um, not only at Saratoga sites, the public housing complex that literally is in the shadow of Norlite, uh, but the folks of the capital district at large. The letter also points out that the area of testing was too narrow, um, calling it examining the problem with a microscope. DEC focused its investigation on potential uh, emissions from Norlite by looking at soil samples all within about a half mile of Norlite. Uh, that, that adds crucial data to the question, but we know these emissions can travel for miles and miles. If you're only focused on the, on the half mile around Norlite, you're not able to see the scale of these emissions uh, and, the, and where they might be going. You really have to kind of zoom out to begin to understand the scale of where these emissions might be going. So uh, DEC adds, adds crucial data to the question, but if you're only asking about emissions within a half mile from the plant, you're missing potentially 90% of the problem. 
And is there anything else about the DEC study or this letter to Commissioner Basil Sagos that you'd like to talk about? Let's go, let's, let's do a few things. I don't, I don't ever want to forget the timeline here. Uh, DEC study is, is uh, it, you know, they add, they add new data to the question and, and I appreciate that data they add. We should not be doing this study four years after Norlite started burning AFFF. These studies should have been done before any AFFF was burned at Norlite. Uh, and it's unconscionable that we're only asking the question after the fact of millions of pounds of this toxic firefighting foam being processed at Norlite, uh, despite there being no evidence that incineration destroys these toxic compounds. Uh, so I don't ever want to lose sight of that. Um, the, second, the second thing uh, that I want to sort of just go to is DEC continues to place a tremendous amount of faith in an incinerator that is habitually out of compliance with environmental law. Norlite is not a good neighbor. Uh, they, they have been out of compliance with the Clean Water Act for 36 months out of the last 36 months. They've been out of compliance with RICRA, uh, the, the statutes that govern toxic, uh, uh, toxic waste, uh, about half of the time in the last three years. Uh, there are, I believe, 15 enforcement actions from EPA against them in the last five years. There is a litany uh, of infractions that New York State DEC ha has leveraged against them. Uh, Basil Sagos himself uh, called them recently, uh, a, I think it was a serial violator, Norlite. This is, not, this is not a good hazardous waste incinerator. And I don't understand why DEC is going to such extreme lengths uh, to try to protect it uh, and to try to sort of ensure um, it's, that, it, that it's operating correctly. It's, it's not clear to me why DEC is placing its own reputation on the line to exonerate the reckless burning of AFFF at Norlite. To read that letter sent to Commissioner Segos, visit our website at mediasanctuary.org. And you just heard Dr. David Bond speaking with HMM's Alexis Goldsmith. We continue the roundtable discussion on the topic, Lessons Learned from the Civil Rights Movement to the Black Lives Matter movement created by WOOC roaming labor correspondent and my good friend, Mr. Willie Terry. He talks with David Walker, Leon Van Dyke, Carlos, Carlos Delfler, and Angel Martinez. This segment is part six of a seven-part segment. labor movement unless we start agitating and fight for what we need and fight for our own system that brings freedom, justice, and equality to everyone. And uh, David, something you want to say about that? I agree. Uh, uh, I would go to South Africa and say that the president of South Africa now came up out of the labor movement, came up out of the uh, ANC, and, and it's an example of struggles in Africa, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, uh, had to depend on the labor movement when he went back to uh, went back to uh, Ghana and ABSW. I don't know if most of you know the name, but uh, uh, Association of Black Social Workers uh, uh, went to South Africa and they uh, uh, joined with the African social workers uh, uh, 
I don't know whether that's still viable, but we certainly have to begin to make those kinds of connections uh, uh, because all black people are workers. And, 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 and we're, got, we're not going to just do it in the United States. We're going to have to get work, black workers throughout the world interested in, uh, uh, in the struggle. I mean, the laborers in South Africa that held up the ANC all all that, all that period of time before they went into armed, armed struggle. So that's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. So you're saying that one of the things is uh, we have to develop, the lesson is that we have to develop our struggle internationally. Because, I mean, the Panthers did that, right? The Panthers did that. Uh, the Panthers had an international uh, movement when they when they was, was uh, around. And also W.D. Boss did it too. I mean, he had the Pan-Africanist Congress you know, he was the one that founded yes. African Congress. And also helped the civil rights movement, too, because I think the civil rights movement didn't just, it wasn't just local, you know, down south, because they took it all over, because King went all over the world telling people about what was going on here. And Malcolm, too, right? I think that, like he said, of course, uh, David said it's correct, that was, it's the labor movement. I remember that labor supported the very essence of the Poor People's Campaign in Resurrection City was the labor movement. Leon Davis of 1199, Walter Wright of the United uh, Auto Workers, you know that, and many other unions supported the very essence of, because this is the basis of our struggle for a living wage. Now we're waging, uh, we're following the footsteps of those people in the past that were fighting for the very essence of a right to be a union member to have a job, and now we're heading to the highest stage of $15 an hour, in which we have to unite and have our eyelids to fight for it. For people, that's not even high, but it's a step for people to live, to stop being hungry, and having 10 and 20 jobs just to survive and support their families. I think that the boys, he died a, a day or a couple of days before the March on Washington, and it was the labor unions that marched that day. Right. And then that day, uh, I think David O'Leary knows this, that on Solidarity Day, on June the 19th in 1968, it was the labor unions that came in to support us. That was the most happiest days that I saw. It was the unions that came to support us. And I think that many of the young people now who are struggling have to wake up from these one issue of struggles and realize that the struggle is big and that they have to respect and learn knowledge of the past. They have to study knowledge of the past because a tree without a seed will never grow. Right. And this I could say that we have to always intensify our struggle by teaching the young people, they are the future, that the struggle, the lessons of the past uh, even today, of reverence even today now. And now the, the fight is, is to have, we have allies. Hopefully they will practice what they're preaching or what they're saying. And I think that more than anything, we have to keep tight to this. We have to work collectively, learning from each other and struggling from the very beginning we did that. And we have to continue a set of one-issue struggles in which certain people promote. I won't say who they were, but they promote that. Because that's the name of the game. Right. And uh, there's a lot of books written about the labor movement, and especially, in particular, the black labor movement. 
And uh, and I think it's very important. I agree, Carl. It's very important that the uh, uh, students of the day, the movement of the day, they got to know about the importance of the labor movement, which I don't think they really know. You know, know how important the labor movement is in in the struggle that we're involved in, and and that gonna have to be uh, taught. Uh, I wanna uh, go to one last question. I don't wanna hold you too long, but I wanna ask you and everybody, but this is for everybody. Over the years, uh, how have your life been impacted? You know, over the years about all these movements. How have your life, how, personally, how you, how you've been, your life been impacted by these movements? Willie, yeah, I just like to take just a step back, just a minute, Yo, about the labor movement. We must not. The labor movement certainly contributed to the civil rights movement, uh -huh. but also we can't forget. That the AFL-CIO, when they organized in 1867 the Magic Conference, they excluded blacks from membership. That's right. That, you know, that's the first thing. The second thing, that exclusion lasted up until 1948, when most unions excluded at white-only clauses. We cannot forget that. We cannot forget the role that, that progressive union people, like Walter Ruther, the communication workers, 1199, they all played positive roles. I mean, it was 1199 that funded uh, Malcolm X's speeches. So I give them credit, but the labor, the labor unions as a whole were racist. They excluded minorities from their, from, from their ranks. And, and, and people like, uh, uh, I forget who the was the president of AFCIO for years, you know. Oh, what's his name again? I forget his name right now, but he was part of the problem, not part of the solution. Me? So we cannot confuse the major labor unions who excluded us, and that's the lesson they had to learn. By excluding us, they weakened their own self. So when people like came after them strong and hard, they had I, 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 Carlos, I give you the floor. I just <laughs> yeah. so, forgive me. No, 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 no. Uh, but I, I, I just say, you know, the brothers. When we started, we started out because the construction labor union excluded black workers and minority were black and brown workers from being in construction, and we had to pick at them. They were the people that we were fighting. So you know, that has to be part of the mix and understanding who are our friends and who are our enemies and who are sometimes our friends and sometimes our enemies. So I, I just like to go ahead, Carlos, I'm sorry. Uh, I think that the name that you wanted to mention was that creep by the name of George Meany, who was born in yeah, Harlem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey. Right. George Meany, who supported the war in Vietnam, and he didn't even support us at the Poor People's Campaign. He said, yeah, right, right. I know so you I know that. that and like you said, that it wasn't until 1948 when they so-called uh, busted the banner, but it was the progressive people who were fighting for the right. very essence of including everybody in the union. Right. Because an injury to one is an injury yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to all. But, you know, the narrative, the many of the young people have to learn these. This is knowledge that will fulfill your soul. This is something, what did the movement do to me? I could say that it was a freedom movement. It was the freedom schools that I learned and got educated. 
It was a movement of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and one of the organizers that had the Freedom School that taught me many things. Yeah. I what my parents taught me too, but they taught. They gave us a political education that's so rich. And I could say that being involved in the movement has helped me. It helped me to struggle. It helped me, in essence, even to get an education that was denied to us because our parents didn't have the money. Uh, my father and mother wanted me to go to college and I finally won. It was because of the movement and also marching and being a citizen of Resurrection City. When I came back and I came back to New York City and went to college and graduated. And, I, and I'll say that it, it was impact, but it also gave me a real training of political education that nobody can fool me. <laughs> because I know history. You just heard the panelists, David Walker, Leon Van Dyke, Carlos Duflar, and Angel Martinez speaking with Willie Terry, who created this segment as the part of a larger series called The Struggle Continues. You can hear the whole segment, including the last two minutes of this segment, on our website at mediasanctuary.org. Triple E's host, that's right, me, the hippest, hottest host in America, met up with Mayor James Perkins Jr., the mayor of Selma, Alabama. Mr. Perkins was the mayor of Selma twice before. Now he's coming back for a new term. He was Selma's first black mayor in 2000. In his first segment, this is the first segment of a two-part interview with Mayor Perkins. He shares his thoughts on the current events happening in the United States and the impact on Selma. This interview took place on the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, the historic march from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. Hello again, everyone. This is H. Bosch Jr. of the Triple E's, Education, Empowerment, Entrepreneurship. Today, I'm in historic Selma, Alabama at the St. James Hotel. Special thanks to Samithia Rudolph of the St. James Hotel in Selma and Dawn Taylor, executive assistant to the mayor. Now, today's guest, the Honorable James Perkins, mayor of Selma, Alabama. Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Well, it's good to be here and invitations are important. I appreciate the, the invite and the opportunity to have a conversation with you. First off, Congratulations for being elected the first African-American to become mayor of Selma, Alabama. Considering you grew up here during the times of segregation, did you ever imagine or aspire to become involved in politics, sir? Well, uh, there are multiple parts <laughs> to that answer. Initially in my childhood, uh, no, it was not on the radar. It was not something that I, ever perceived or even understood, didn't understand, I didn't know anything about the position of mayor, the office of mayor. Uh, as, uh, as I grew up in the movement as a child protester, uh, we learned quickly who the mayor was, uh, former mayor Joe T. Smitherman, and uh, we quickly learned the, you know, the powers and the authorities of the office and uh, the influence that he had in that office. But even then, that was not an aspiration of mine. I, my first involvement with, with local politics at this level was when 
gentleman by the name of Dr. Frederick Douglas Reese, Dr. F.D. Reese. He ran for mayor in 1984. And as a young man, he asked me to serve as his campaign manager. Uh, and so that was my first uh, outing in the world of politics. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's when I really began to, you know, get a good understanding of what this is all about. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in November 2020, you ran <clears throat> and won the Selma, Alabama mayoral seat. You were mm-hmm. Selma's first black mayor in 2000. I understand this is the eighth time you are running for mayor and the third time in office. What made you decide to run again and talk about some of your focus points in your Let's Fix This Together platform? My reason for running uh, this time was the same reason I ran the first time. Uh, The first time I ran, uh, I recognized that the city was in trouble. I believe then, as I do now, that that in my skill set, I have a certain set of tools that could be used or applied to the issues and the problems in our community. And I uh, wanted to offer them uh, through public service. Uh, and so that's the same reason I did this now. Uh, the theme that we ran on this time, let's fix this together, uh, is really a reflection of how broken the community is. Uh, it is. Uh, when, when I ran, it was clear then, I think, to the public and to me that our city was dysfunctional in government, and, and as a consequence of that, we were not providing the services that were needed in the city. Uh, we were falling way short. Uh, the city, the citizens of the city re- recognized that, um, that uh, my passion, my commitment, and also recognized my experience and decided that I would be the best person to tackle the problems that we have today. Uh, and so uh, they honored me by allowing me to serve again in this capacity. Uh, so Mr. Mayor, uh, mm-hmm. the Federal House of Representatives recently passed HR1 for the People's Act, which is a sweeping package, improves access to voting and Acticorotlium reforms, but according to the sentencing project survey, more than 280,000 Alabamians or one of every 13 qualified citizens in the state have voting rights stripped away. Please share with us your thoughts on voting access and reform. Well, uh, people died so that people of color disenfranchised people across this nation Amen. could have the right to vote. Uh, the uh, protests and the movements of 1965 uh, were real. They started long before 1965. Many of the people who were part of that movement, uh, I knew them personally. Many of them have passed on, and so I honor them posthumously. Uh, they were great people, courageous people, and they led a voting rights movement here in Selma before SCLC before SNCC, before uh, Dr. King arrived in Selma. We know them to be the Dallas County Voters League, and uh, they were working hard. We now affectionately refer to the leadership of that organization as the Courageous Eight. <clears throat> they were uh, a power to be reckoned with and were fighting for voting rights even then. Uh, when you look at the consequence of the movement in 1965, people died. Reverend James Reed, he died. Uh, Viola Luzo died. Jimmy Lee Jackson died. Those people were killed as a consequence of trying to help 
people of color, disenfranchised people in this nation get the right to vote. And so it was critical uh, that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 be passed. When it was passed, uh, that was something to celebrate. When it was passed, it had teeth, it had enforcement uh, uh, parameters within it. Section five was an enforcement component. Uh, when section five was gutted and removed from the act, we lost uh, a lot of the privileges for voting and the disenfranchisement began all over again. And so now we are in the process with amendment one to restore some of the teeth that uh, some of the enforcement authorities, some of the, and to, and, to, and to dismantle a lot of the things that state governments across this nation have done to disenfranchise people from voting. Uh, so I think this is a good thing. I think it is necessary and I wholeheartedly support it. Last November, 2020, workers at the Bessemer Amazon facility notified the NLRB of their plans to hold a vote on whether to be represented by the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Close to 6,000 workers began voting earlier this month to join the union. Where do you stand on organized labor and what are your thoughts on federal minimum wage increase, or should I say, living wage to $15 an hour. I understand that Alabama does not have a state minimum wage. Alabama does not have a state minimum wage. I'll start there and work my way back with some question. When I was in office uh, between 2000 and 2008, the minimum wage was $5.25 an hour. Mm. Uh, I started the process then of increasing minimum wage, and I made a commitment, a public statement then that I would not stop until the minimum wage of city employees was at $9 an hour. Uh, when I left office, we had gotten up to $7.25 an hour. That was before the federal government raised the minimum wage to $7.25. So Selma was on, on the right track, moving in that direction. I was, the efforts was thwarted. Uh, there were people who did not agree uh, with my, with my uh, commitment to pay uh, a livable wage for people for doing a, a job, a, a day's work. And uh, I, I think looking back on it, I think that was one of the primary reasons that I was not reelected. Uh, <laughs> fast forward to now, when I took office, uh, the minimum wage for uh, workers in the city government was $7.25 an hour, is where I left it 12 years ago. And so the first thing that I did in the, in the municipal budget that was just passed by the city council, in that municipal budget, the minimum pay now for citizens, for, for laborers in the city of Selma is $9 an hour. So it took 12 years to get that commitment done, but we've made that progress. In November, 2020, shots were fired into your home. The police chief, Kenta Fullard, said there would be an investigation on whether shots were from stray bullets from a random shooting or if you were the target. What is the status of that investigation? Well, it was determined that uh, uh, that uh, with the caliber of weapon that was used, uh, it had to be a shot fired from a close range. So it was not just a stray bullet uh, and being shot from a close range and entering the home. It, uh, uh, the presumption was, uh, the conclusion was that it probably was intentional. And what you have to do is recognize that when you enter an office like this and you are firm on your positions and stand as I am, uh, that kind of intimidation does not uh, change my, my direction, does not change my passion, and it most certainly will not change uh, uh, the intensity 
uh, of my of my actions and trying to do what is necessary to improve the quality of life of people in my Until at next time, this is H. Bosch Jr., Inez Bosch's baby boy, right here in my mother's home state, Alabama, Anniston, Alabama. And I know she is, like you said, there is a God looking down over me because what I'm doing, I wouldn't have never imagined in my wildest dreams doing this. And Miss Inez Bosch, I thank you. So until next time, don't hear about making a difference. You need to make a difference, all right? This is Inez Bosch's baby boy, your overcoming adversity specialist, doing what I'm made to believe. Special thanks to Samithia Rudolph, Serena Ellis, Sharyl Scott of the St. James Hotel, Selma, Alabama, for your kindness and hospitality and providing me with everything I needed to make this interview possible. You young ladies are truly professionals. What a blessing. Last but not least, thank you to Ms. Don Taylor, Mayor Perkins' executive assistant for giving me access to the mayor on this historic weekend. To the Honorable James Perkins Jr. and the entire city of Selma, Alabama, thank you so much. Continue to let your light shine. For our next segment, John William Kirby Kelly pleaded guilty to hosting an internet chat room and his role with white supremacists in which he and others called in fake bomb threats and attacks on churches, many targeted because of their racial, religious, and or LGBT inclusive profiles. Reverend Dr. Bill Levering, who led the congregation at First Reformed Church in Schenectady at the time, uh, which was one of the targeted churches, reacts to the sentencing in his interview with HMM correspondent Corinne Carey. Reverend Dr. Levering, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. I would like to know your reaction to the sentencing of a young man who was involved in threats made against the First Reformed Church in Schenectady. John William Kirby Kelly was sentenced to 33 months in jail for his involvement in threats to a number of churches. What's your reaction? Well, let's call him John. Let's make him a person instead of a figure we can all pile on. We're, you know, it's a sad time when anyone has to go to jail, especially given the state of corrections in the United States of America. But we were not pleased at his sentencing. We uh, we mourn the fact that he made some bad decisions and was in a group of people who made over a hundred different kinds of attacks on different organizations, usually based on, you know, what we might call hate crimes or prejudice or something like that. So we mourn the fact that these things happened and mourn the fact that uh, he made these mistakes and is paying for them in this unfortunate way. What did happen? What threats were made against the church? Well, early in the afternoon on December 28th, so it's winter time. it's right after uh, Christmas. Um, we're sort of coming down off of the high of Christmas. We get a call, well, the police get a call that there uh, are bombs and a shooter with a rifle in the church. So the police immediately come over and clear out our building and set up a perimeter. All of my staff, five or six people who happen to be in the building at the time, go to a coffee shop a block away and, and are sort of held there, interestingly enough. 
uh, for protection. And I, I set up um, with the police and a couple of city officials who stopped by at the corner of the church and sort of uh, waited out. The church allegedly, well, some of the press says the church was chosen. I mean, to be clear, I've never spoken with, with John or any of the people in his group. But those who have said that our church was chosen because we have a presence, we have a progressive presence, and we have a couple of video cameras that are online 24-7. So at any time of the day or night, you can go in and look at our sanctuary, which seemed to appeal to them for some reason. But on the other hand, by the same token, when the police said, gosh, what's going on in there? I said, well, here, let's pull out our cell phones and look. And we could actually see what was happening. So very quickly, we have a number of cameras. My security person was able to say no one came into the building. We've reviewed all the tapes, and that doesn't seem to be a credible idea. So we were able to reassure the police, but due diligence set in, and they then came with some dogs and sniffed around for bombs because, you know, you never know. There was not a great deal of tension at the site because we were pretty sure that this was a bogus threat right from the very beginning. But the idea of the threat itself had a certain power. So while we didn't think there was a bomb, we all were sort of mourning the fact that someone felt as though this was a good idea to do this thing. And for a long time, there was no, until the FBI and others correlated a whole bunch of data, there was no movement in the case. So that's what happened on that day. It's kind of an interesting day. What impact did this threat have on you and your staff? That's a good question. The staff didn't take it very seriously because we have, in addition to these cameras that are on 24-7, something like a dozen security cameras. Our approach to security in an urban area is not to lock it up like a fortress because someone can always break in our approach is to know what's going on. And so, frankly, none of us were terribly frightened, but there was some disruption. There was police. Actually, the, there was a little more impact on the congregation. The congregation wasn't on the site, doesn't trust the security system as much as we do. So there was a, a little bit of, gosh, should we come to church Sunday? You know, if you're in a family and there's been some sort of hate crime kind of thing going on, it makes you think just a little bit. So there was some trepidation on the part of the congregation. On the other hand, there were some folks who geared themselves up and said, no, this is, we have to have a witness to, to stand against hatred. And so attendance was about the same as it normally was on the Sunday after Christmas. So that was a, a, the general kind of response to it. If we hadn't had quite so many cameras, it might have been different. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm talking to the Reverend Dr. Bill Levering about John William Kelly Kirby, the 20-year-old from Virginia who was sentenced to 33 months in prison for his role in threats made against more than 100 churches, including the First Reformed Church of Schenectady, where Dr. Levering led a congregation. The churches appear to be targeted because of racial, anti-LGBT, and religious animus. Much of the evidence against Mr. Kirby was found in his activity in chat rooms with known white supremacists. When you found out that John was arrested and charged with a hate crime, 
What was going through your mind? Well, religious people are in the business of knowing that we're all broken in one way or another. So there's a mournfulness. I don't think that there was a great deal of anger because the harm was not overwhelming. I mean, there was no bomb. There was no actual threat. So we sort of mourned the fact that he had made these mistakes, along with a lot of other people. I mean, he he was the one that was arrested, but there was a whole chat room full of folks that were piling on the situation, very much like what happened in Washington in January. There's some people say, let's go get him. Okay, all right. And they sort of encourage each other. And there's this unfortunate event that happens. But, you know, we're in the business of reconciliation and the justice system in Virginia was keeping us posted all the time, asked for victim impact statements. And we declined on several occasions victim impact statements because there wasn't, frankly, a great deal of impact. And we didn't want to sort of pile on this situation. We were mostly interested in the rehabilitation of the person as opposed to the punishment of the person. Do you believe that involvement in the criminal justice system, a sentence of 33 months, which is less than the sentencing guidelines set forth for this kind of a crime, do you believe that there's a chance for rehabilitation or even redemption? Well, there's always a chance. We wouldn't believe what we believe if we didn't believe that there was a hope that people can change. And if people can't change, boy, we're all pretty stuck. (laughs) I think that there is a need for some sort of message to an individual that what they did was wrong, but just as important is some sort of structure to help people break out of the patterns that they have established. He did at the trial indicate great remorse, talking about how he got carried away. And he says he was, quote, personally disgusted by the direction that the chat room took after he left it. And the fact that he left it before he got arrested does suggest something too. I mostly mourn that this time that he's going to spend, I doubt if it will be the entire 33 months, but that the time that he spends will not, in fact, be a rehabilitative time, but will be essentially what our culture likes to do, which is to punish people, which often turns out to be quite counterproductive. Is there another way that we should be responding to crimes like this? Is there another way? We should have a culture in which it doesn't happen. Uh, we need to facilitate the the lack of the polarization and exactly what's happening today in our culture where people are seeing things vastly different from each other and the rhetoric is, exp- I mean, I, I'm surprised there aren't more hate crimes today similar to what happened in January at the Capitol because our rhetoric is just so polarized. And I think we're all called to humility We're all called to a little more sensitivity to other people as people, and that people's person is more important than their opinions at any given moment. John made some very unfortunate decisions that caused inconvenience and fear, but I'm I'm not sure this justifies 33 months of being in really unpleasant situation. We've been charged not to give an eye for an eye or not to return evil for evil, and I'm just worried that we do that so often. That was Reverend Dr. Bill Levering speaking with HMM's Corinne Carey about the sentencing of John William Kirby Kelly. We're now going to go into the Dying with Dignity talk. Uh, Spencer Keeble will be talking with Corinne Carey. 
And the participants can expect to discuss what it means to have a good death, explore what advanced care planning means and what tools exist to help put those in place, and learn about the option of medical aid dying. Hi, I'm Spencer Keeble on Hudson Mohawk Magazine and WOC. And today I'm joined by Corinne Carey, Senior State Director for New York and New Jersey's branch of the nonprofit Compassion and Choices. Thanks for joining us today, Corinne. Thanks for having me, Spencer. So you are moderating an event this week on Dine with Dignity in New York as part of uh, the Sanctuary's People Health Sanctuary. What's the purpose of this three-part series? Is it initiating this discussion that many of us aren't having about issues that come with end of life, or is it pushing towards a certain legislation? Um, what's what's the, the purpose of the series? So I think folks who've been involved with the People's Health Sanctuary, which is a project run out of the Sanctuary for Independent Media, uh, have been talking for many, many months during the isolation of really terror of this pandemic about issues of death and dying and grief. And we conceived of a series right at the darkest time of the pandemic in this country. And and the, the series was called Coming Out of Darkness. And we launched it with a really moving event And we thought of it as maybe the first in a series of events that we would do every six weeks. Uh, And the first event really focused on grief and loss and how as a community, we're dealing with that. Um, We had several death doulas on the panel. I moderated that event. There was broad community participation and it was done in conjunction with the debut of a community altar memorializing those that we've lost to the coronavirus, to police violence, to gun violence in the North Troy community and beyond. And so that first event kicked off this series. The second event was about um, how to deal with grief. And it was, uh, our guest speaker was Lisa Good from Urban Grief. And now this third series is about examining our own mortality and planning for the kind of death that we want. What COVID-19 has really done, among many other things, is it has shown people the difference between a good death and a bad death. I mean, to be clear, no death is good. We don't like to lose people. But the idea that one would die hooked up to machinery, unable to interact with loved ones, unable to touch or see someone's face, there is no doubt that that is a bad death. And so this event is focused on empowering people to put in place plans that they can direct their healthcare providers to respect about what the end of their lives could look like. And so it's focused on how to do advanced care planning, what tools exist for people to take charge of those decisions now um, before they lose the ability to speak for themselves. And that happens when someone has, um, you know, a serious case of coronavirus, but it also happens when someone develops dementia or Alzheimer's or is in advanced stages of cancer or some other types of terminal illnesses. So 
planning for the kind of care that you want at the end of your life in those situations is really important. And with uh, planning for one's um, end of life, what sort of choices can you make uh, in the care that you might receive with some of the diseases that you, you mentioned? Well, let's look at COVID-19 first, because that's really the issue that has brought talk of death and dying into households in a more, in a more regular way. People are thinking and talking about death and dying all the time now, because the statistics hit us every single day. And when you are given a diagnosis of COVID-19, you have to think about, or you have to be aware of what it means to be placed on a ventilator. Um, And certainly there are, if one chooses to go to the hospital, and then for some people, if you're admitted to the hospital, because we know that there have been tremendous disparities in the kind of care that people have received and people who wanted to go to a hospital were turned away. Um, But say you want to go to a hospital, and you have underlying conditions, or you have a severity of a case such that the recommendation is that you be placed on a ventilator, different kinds of people have different likelihood of survival when placed on a ventilator. Someone with advanced comorbidities or someone who is much older may decide that they don't want to be placed on a ventilator because once you are placed on a ventilator, you're unable to communicate with people. And so my organization, the National Nonprofit Compassion and Choices, has put together a toolkit for people to understand what their options are. You know, you could choose to simply go home and die at home, or you could choose the most care possible. And the toolkit that we put together provides an an outline um, of what some likely scenarios are and how you can make those choices based on your own values and beliefs. There's also an addendum to a living will that we've created. uh, And so we'll go all over all of that during the event on Friday night. Take another disease, for example, dementia and Alzheimer's. There are things that you can do now before a diagnosis to plan for the kind of care you want. So if you have a dementia diagnosis and you lose the ability to speak for yourself, you can decide in advance that you don't want curative treatment. Um, So if you develop an infection when you have dementia, you would not be given antibiotics and it is likely that you would die from that infection. Um, And that's a choice that you can make now, not to linger with dementia. Some people want to live as long as they are expressing joy at life and people should be able to do that. And the tools that our organization has available lead people through exploring what some of those inflection points, what some of those decision points might be uh, when someone has dementia and what quality of life they really want to have at the end. For people with terminal illnesses, the options are limited here in New York. If you're lingering with a terminal illness and you begin to suffer, you can increase the dosage of pain medication. And sometimes that makes makes it impossible to communicate with people. Um, You can be sort of on medication that renders you unable to do much of anything at all and just exist. You also have the option of asking for palliative sedation, which means that under medical supervision, you're placed in a medical coma and nutrition and hydration are withheld until death comes. 
you can also on your own choose to stop eating and drinking. That's called voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. It takes a tremendous amount of willpower. For some people, it's a good end. It's a peaceful end. And for others, they experience tremendous agitation. Uh, and it's, it's very difficult and very hard on the family to watch. What 22% of Americans, you know, one in five Americans in nine states plus Washington DC have is an additional option. And that option is to ask for what's called medical aid in dying. Some people know it as death with dignity. And what it does is it allows a terminally ill person who has six months or less to live to ask their doctor for a prescription that they can take at a time of their own choosing should their suffering become too great to bring about a peaceful death. This legislation has been around since 1994 when Oregon was the first state to adopt it. Laws like this have more than a dozen safeguards to make sure that it's patient autonomy that drives every decision, that it's the patient alone who can make the request and ingest the medication on their own. And our organization is working to expand options for people who are terminally ill at the end of life. And so we'd like to see the New York State Legislature pass the Medical Aid and Dying Act in 2021. Is there anything else we should know about this event? Uh, the People's Health Sanctuary presents Dying with Dignity in New York, taking place on Friday at 6.30. Well, I'd just like to encourage anyone who's interested in what options at the end of life look like. Um, you don't have to be in favor of medical aid and dying or death with dignity to attend this event. You will get practical tools that you can use to think about your own wishes and values at the end of your life. And you'll be given an opportunity to really examine what this bill does and doesn't do, because there's a lot of myth out there about death with dignity. And I think the most important thing for me, aside from expanding options for people at the end of life is making sure that all New Yorkers understand what it means. Um, so that's why I hope people attend the event. Thank you for joining us on Knots and Mohawk Magazine. Corinne Carey, who will be moderating the end of life in the age of COVID third part of, of that series. Thanks, Spencer. That event is taking place this Friday on March 19th. Spencer Keeble brought us that conversation with Corinne Carey. The event is called Dying with Dignity in New York, and the series is End of Life in the Age of COVID. Please visit mediasanctuary.org for more information. That concludes our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm H. Bosch, Jr., Remember to tune in every weekday to get your daily dose of local news. You can also get that dose on demand through our Hudson Mohawk Magazine podcast and Facebook page. If you have comments, suggestions, or comments on our work, email us at hmmsanctuary.org. As a reminder, the Hudson Mohawk Magazine is produced by the local volunteers. If you're interested in helping with our radio effort, shoot us an email at infomedia.org or join us at our weekly virtual meetings on Monday night at 7.07 p.m. by sending an email requesting an invitation link to the HMM at mediasanctuary.org. Until next time, folks, I'm H. Boss Jr. Thank you for tuning in with the legendary Cena Hickey, my co-host. 